And so what are we doing to those families when they come in-house and we're not necessarily listening to recommendations that they're giving when they know their patient the best and or doing things a little bit differently or getting them back out of the hospital, back to their, their homes where the care can be delivered. I think we could do better is the short answer. Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Alice, remind our listeners what we do here at Pete's Grit. Absolutely. Pete's Grit is an educational PICU podcast. We're trying to find the best bedside teaching spiels around the country and the world and capture them in audio format. And today we have another very important topic. Tell us about what we're speaking about today. Yes. Today, we're talking about long-stay patients and really complex care patients in the PICU. When you really zoom out and think about these kids, if they're getting a lot of care in the PICU, these are really our patients. They're high risk for adverse events, they're high risk for readmissions, and we need to make sure that we're doing the best job possible. That's right, and we should really keep in mind that there's a very small percentage of patients who are long-stay patients, and they require a high proportion of the ICU bed days. So. This is a really important topic for us to discuss, and we have the opportunity to make a really big impact in these patients' lives. So Alice, who are we speaking with today? Yes, today we've got two guests. Our first guest is Dr. Jeffrey Edwards. Jeff Edwards is an associate professor of pediatrics at Columbia University and a pediatric intensivist at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital in New York. He's an active physician investigator with clinical and research interests in children with complex chronic conditions and technology dependence. And our second guest is Dr. Aaron Gordon. Dr. Gordon is an associate professor of pediatrics here at my institution, the University of Texas Southwestern, an intensivist in the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Unit. She is the medical director of the Inpatient Developmental Care Program and directly involved in creating an environment that fosters the growth and development of the congenital heart disease population, including parental, mental health, and resilience. We're so excited for both of them to be with us today. Yes, fabulous clinicians and researchers. Let's get right to the episode. Welcome back to PedScript. We are so excited to have Dr. Jeff Edwards and Dr. Aaron Gordon with us today to discuss this very important topic of long-stay patients in the pediatric ICU and the role of primary intensivists. Welcome, Jeff and Aaron. To get us started, will you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and include something you enjoy outside of medicine? This is Jeff. I am a pediatric intensivist and actually have always been drawn to topics that are not lighthearted for which there are no easy answers. Probably because of this, I studied ethics before medical school and chose pediatric critical care as a career. I've always been the sort of intensivist who would rather do a family meeting at 3 a.m. than try to put a line in. But also because of this, when I'm away from work, I can't bring myself to watch a depressing or dramatic movie or TV show. And then something outside of work. In recent years, I've returned to one of my childhood loves and started reading comic books all over again as a pure escapism. Well, that's fun. And how about you, Erin? And I'm Erin. I've been practicing uh, cardiac critical care for about nine years now. I absolutely love the life I have inside the hospital walls, but I think it's my life outside of the hospital walls that really has shaped who I am as a person. I have a husband of 20 years. I have three amazing kids, my eldest at the University of Iowa. And outside of work, I actually love fitness and nutrition and watching my kids play their sport and reading. While I don't read comic books, that sounds actually really exciting. I like to watch the Marvel movies instead of reading the comic books. 
I like to read romance novels that all have happy endings, probably because of the work that I do as well. Yes, a very similar concept here. So please tell us how you became interested in this topic and how you are currently involved in this area as it relates to patient care and research. So when I started medical school, I um, actually asked to be put in touch with someone who does medical ethics, um, having just finished graduate school. And I was introduced to a Pease intensive intensivist and ethicist, and I used to, used to skip class to go on rounds with him in the PICU. And there it was very striking how many PICU patients were children with complex chronic conditions. So they had issues before they got right in the ICU, and they would have issues when they left. In fact, I still see such children as increasingly significant part of the future of pediatric critical care. I was also impressed by the extent that their families go to care for them, which was another reason why I was drawn to this patient population. Later, I started noticing things like these patients are the ones that ethics consultations, palliative care consultations, issues of moral distress and compassion fatigue revolve around. As I've said, I've always been drawn to topics for which there's no easy answers. So now I spend a good part of my research time on patients with prolonged critical illness and prolonged ICU stays and try to find ways to improve their family-centered care. Nice. And how about you, Erin? So my interest in this topic, or I guess in the advocacy of patients and their families, I think stems from me being a mom. I quickly realized that the guardians, parents, grandparents, whom be it, really had little involvement in the bedside care of their child or and or loved one. Um, and that really just kind of struck a nerve with me. Our patients weren't being held. Their diapers weren't being changed by their parents. They weren't being fed in the upright position by a parent. They weren't getting touched. And so that's really what drove my interest in this topic. And I think where I, it remains is I'm just an active participant. I pride myself in the honor of being a primary intensivist. And we're really attempting to promote guidance into what that actually looks like here at Children's. And I think the biggest thing that keeps me maintaining my interest in a primary intensivist role is my passion for just the patient-provider relationship and the importance of communication. So that is kind of my journey. Mm. Yeah, it's really helpful to, to hear all that. And I think each of you have a unique perspective that I think will be really helpful as we unpack this further in our conversation today. How about I give us a case to set the scene and then we'll move forward into our topic. So... Our patient is a five-week-old female. She's being cared for in the cardiac ICU. She's been there since birth, and she has significant congenital heart disease, including ductal-dependent single-ventricle physiology, and she ultimately will require a heart transplant, and she'll likely be in the cardiac ICU until that time. So she's looking at a very prolonged stay. Up to this point, she has had a central venous line-related thrombosis, so a clot, and a caustic peripheral IV extravasation that requires ongoing care. The parents, as you might understand, are worried about her and generally are becoming increasingly frustrated with her course and maybe with care the ICU team has provided. So, Jeff, maybe we'll direct this first question at you. So what exactly are long-stay patients in the ICU and those with complex chronic conditions? And why is this such an important topic for us to focus on today? So I think anyone who works in a tertiary PICU knows a lot of our patients have chronic conditions. And over the years, there's been a few nomenclatures that have been created to kind of define them. Probably the most common one is complex chronic conditions. Basically, the definition is any medical condition that can be expected to last for more than a year. It can involve more than one organ system. And the condition requires subspecialty care, and it can sometimes lead to death. Now, this is often 
synonymous with another common definition of that is a child with medical complexity. And so that would mean one of these kind of more severe chronic conditions, functional limitations, ongoing healthcare needs, and utilization. And as far as a long-stay patient, there's actually no universally accepted definition. So you can find different things in the literature going from seven days to greater than 30 days. I think the message is, is that it's just a good deal longer than the average patient. Probably an average patient's PICU stay is two days. Maybe the median is three to four days. And so these long-stay patients, whatever definition you use, we're talking about a small subgroup, probably less than 5% of the PICU patients. But they are the ones that are often in our mind because they're there a lot. They use a lot of resources. A lot of the palliative care consults, ethics consults revolve around these patients. So they, they really are impactful in many ways. And so this case here is really, in my mind, we feel so deeply, as you know, this kid is going to be in the ICU for a long time. This is single ventricle infant bridge to transplant. Aaron, how do you look at the way that we're delivering care now? And how do you see the way that it could be shifted with the primary intensivist? In the cardiac ICU, I think about chronic patients, I think a little bit differently than the standard definitions. And just to kind of circle back to what Jeff was talking about, you know, oftentimes we have these definitions for complex chronic conditions, but it's not necessarily our definition that sometimes matters, but it's how the parents interpret their patient's quote-unquote chronic condition, right, and what that means for their family, be it social isolation, financial burdens, just the anxiety and depression that comes along with an ICU stay. I think it's really hard to navigate those chronic patients, and in the cardiac ICU, we have a lot of patients who remain in the ICU for prolonged periods of time. A single ventricle such as this often stays in-house, be it in the ICU or on C8. And I'm not so sure there's a difference. They're still within the walls of the hospital. You know, we deliver care through rotations, right? We are on service for seven days. We may or may not have call during that time. We may not make big decisions on those post-call days. We have nurses that take care of the patients for 12 hours and then are off for 12 hours. And, you know, during those 12 hours, a lot of things happen. You know, I check out to my peers at four o'clock and at four o'clock till 7 a.m., they're in charge of the patients that I've established a plan for. So essentially they're caring for the patient longer than I am during the day sometimes. I think those delicate conversations that we have with our families during the day and the plans that are established and the way that we transition those handoffs, maybe all the information is not necessarily given. The rapport that we have during the day may be a little bit different at night, depending on family availability. And then I think ownership is a big word here that we use oftentimes in critical care and definitely in the cardiac ICU. It's who owns these patients, you know, aside from the parent, I think, first and foremost. But in my head, and that may just be my passion for this particular topic, we own the patients, you know, it's their critical care providers who advocate. And so really the way that we deliver the care in this kind of rotational pattern Oftentimes, patients who are there for three to five months, they see a lot of us. And so I don't know that that's the best way. In addition, you know, and at this particular time, we know that we have a deficiency of bedside staff and there are shortages everywhere and increased patient volumes. So the sheer number that we're seeing has increased with less resources. So I think, you know, some of these topics and discussions that Jeff was just saying, I think there's going to be an exacerbation of how we manage these patients or think about them, I guess. And I think this conversation is even more timely now because we're just coming off of big surges in RSV and maybe a spike of COVID after the holidays and a number of other viruses. And our patients who need to be in the ICU for long periods of time, 
They can't just be displaced when we have an increased requirement for ICU beds. I want to lean in on some of the suboptimal consequences of patients needing to be in the ICU for long periods of time, because they're certainly relevant. Jeff, maybe you'll take this question. So it seems that when I look across the past couple of decades in pediatric ICU, the overall mortality is really going down substantially. But maybe this isn't the case for our patients with chronic medical conditions and those that require a long stay. So I would agree. The data we have suggests that the incidence of PQ mortality for long-stay patients is magnitudes higher than the typical 2 to 3% we see for the average PICU patient, and even higher than you can find studies say 4% for the average PICU patient with severe chronic illness. Studies comment on somewhere between 6 and upwards of 35% mortality. I've spoken with people in the role of like Aaron, who are primary intensivists in cardiac ICUs, and they feel like their mortality is even higher for a long-stay patient in a cardiac ICU than what mm-hmm. we see in the literature. But besides the mortality, there's also morbidity. So patients will have higher adverse events, higher medical errors. They're prone to hospital-acquired infections, undernourishment, pressure injuries. And it's kind of a positive feedback loop where like these complications are the result of long stays and they contribute to long stays. Perhaps you could even argue they are contributors to pick you death. And then on top of that, Aaron, when I've worked with you, I feel like you have a, an innate sense of how these long ICU stays are particularly burdensome on the families. And do you mind just speaking to maybe the mental health consequences that these long ICU stays and these children who are dealing with these chronic medical conditions, what that actually does to the mental health of the family surrounding them? Yeah, I think it's not only the mental health of the families, but it's actually the developmental outcomes of the patients as well. We know children who are admitted to the ICU, they have increased risk of just getting behind in school, the sequelae from all the things that we do onto them and all the morbidity that they acquire. We know that children in the cardiac ICU, roughly 40 to 50% of them develop some form of ICU delirium within the first 24 hours. And we know that delirium has a direct negative impact on developmental outcomes. And our children with congenital heart disease have a predisposition to that as well. So our families are very pivotal and their mental health is very important in the outcomes of their children. And so getting better resource availability to our parents at the bedside is huge. There have been some recent papers on parental anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the numbers are just insane. Actually, like kind of disgusting when I think about it. And I don't know if that's the right word to use, but it's the right feeling that I have and that we can do better for our families at the bedside so that um, their children can have improved outcomes and they themselves can maintain the same mental capacity that they came in with. And I don't know if Jeff can speak to this, but parents of children with complex medical conditions have a predisposition to altered mental health And so what are we doing to those families when they come in-house and we're not necessarily listening to recommendations that they're giving when they know their patient the best and or doing things a little bit differently or getting them back out of the hospital, back to their their homes where the care can be delivered? I think we could do better is the short answer. I would agree with Aaron. There's definite evidence that families with children with severe chronic conditions, when they come in with a predisposition to having psychosocial challenges already before they even get into the hospital. And also, I think we as intensivists falsely assume that these patients are less susceptible to having these forms of stress because their child was already had severe chronic illness before they came, or they've been to the ICU several times before. 
So therefore, they're used to it. It's not as big of a deal for them. As opposed to the way we probably should be thinking of it, Jeff, as additive. I think as a trainee, when I admit this patient to the ICU, who maybe I've admitted twice already in my short 18 months here, and I'm expecting them to be in the ICU for two or three weeks, I feel like it's easy for me to just think of this as another tune-up for this patient. This is They're coming in for a tune-up, whether it's heart failure or a pulmonary concern. I really should think about this patient is critically ill, and this family is every bit as stressed as the patient next door who's coming in for their first critical care encounter. It certainly is a, an additive or maybe even multiplicative stressor on the patient and the family. So I think we've defined how bad a problem this is. Alice, do you want to give us our next question and we'll move forward? Yeah. So as you've, um, Aaron, as you've mentioned, when we zoom out on the PICU and how care is delivered, we've got attendings that are covering days and nights. We've got frontline providers. These are residents or NPs that are rotating through. There might be a fellow around. There's a set pool of nursing. You might have someone you know you might not. For Jeff, what are some of the ways that PICUs can try and really improve the continuity of care here? How do we restructure our system to provide the best possible care? So I think the main ways people and places have tried to improve the situation is with adjunctive or augmentative strategies. So instead of trying to change the whole culture that we use in the PICU, which is acute care focus, which serves the great majority of our patients, there are other continuity-type interventions. And so those primarily fall within three categories, one being primary or continuity intensivists, primary nurses, and then multidisciplinary team meetings where long-stay patients are discussed. These concepts are probably intuitive to people. You know, a primary intensivist is where one intensivist serves as a consistent physician resource and facilitates the care. And this is despite changes in the on-service intensivists. Then primary nurses is often a small team of nurses that will provide the majority of the bedside care, but they're actually also called upon to do much more. They're often expected to actively participate in family meetings to really advocate for their patients. And then these multidisciplinary team meetings are such that they'll have oftentimes weekly meetings. We'll discuss the long-stay patients and go over the medical, ethical, and psychosocial complexities of the case and try to get all the team members, not just PICU, but so specialists and all the way up the ladder from intensivists to nurses on board and have consensus about what needs to happen for the family. It seems that the general theme is you want to see the big picture. So a primary intensivist who's with the patient for the long haul, a core group of nurses, and then these weekly multidisciplinary meetings, try not to lose the, the big picture focus of the patient. Is that right? I think that's a good way to think of it. And if you narrow down a little bit, I would say all these strategies promote informational and management continuity. Jeff, I just had a question for that because oftentimes we think about multidisciplinary meetings as to involve the immediate caregivers, the immediate services necessary, and the families. In reading the most recent literature, that's not really how they're defined. And so these consultants that we're asking to come to these meetings, how do we get their buy-in and really, how do we encourage their influence on the long-term goals of the patient within these meetings? So I think Riley children in Indiana have the most experience with this. And having spoken with them, I would say it actually takes a cultural change at an institution, really for everyone, not just the PICU, but the providers outside the PICU to actually respect the role of these meetings and to understand that, like, you know, we're not just having this for the PICU. This is for everybody this is to bring everyone together so we really can move their patients' care forward. 
And what I really like about it is the stress. It's not just the current on service attending and the next person that's going to come on. You know, really, it's all the attendings who could possibly be caring for that patient getting on board and being in the room together. Practically with these multidisciplinary meetings, is that something that's happening at the bedside or in a conference room or maybe virtually? And are the parents involved in these meetings? So I think originally they were started with them being in one big conference room. And I think many of them have pivoted to being hybrid now. Typically, families are not invited. It's in some sense, it's partly to create a safe space for all the providers to really speak their minds. It's important that though the families aren't at the meeting, that someone who represents the team circle back with the family to talk about what was talked about and how the conversation will impact their care for the upcoming time. And the rest of our conversation will certainly focus on the role of primary intensivists because thinking about the audience that we're speaking to. Aaron, anything else to add about multidisciplinary meetings or primary nursing teams before we move along? Not necessarily. I think that was my really my only question because in reading, like I said, the literature and thinking about the multidisciplinary teams, psychosocial rounds is what we call them here at CMC. Oftentimes it's not all encompassing, you know, it's not all the intensivists whom are present. The primary nursing staff may or may not be there, the primary rehabilitation services and so on and so forth. So you know, at all times, we don't really have that consensus statement that we need to deliver back to the families about where we are and where we're going with their care. So I think it's good to hear this perspective and maybe bring it back to the way that we perform our meetings. Sure. It certainly takes many resources to have everyone have the time to attend these weekly meetings. Right. There's some other nice benefits that I think come out of these two other forms. Uh, One being that there's qualitative studies that show primary nursing in non-picky settings. The nurses in the studies report greater accountability, autonomy, teamwork, and job satisfaction Mm -hmm. for themselves because of primary nursing. So I think that's nice to hear. Riley's Children's, in their paper they published, they did show that these meetings in a pre- and post-study design showed a decrease in PICU nurses' moral distress overall. So I think those are nice things to stress. Yeah, absolutely. I think we often think about, as a physician, the morbidity and mortality that we see day in and day out, but we're not sitting at the bedside for 12-plus hours. So really maintaining the health of our nurses, and if primary nurses really are incredible advocates for the patient and the family, it's nice to keep them mentally satisfied. Oh, yeah. I remember, I think we do this a lot in our NICU. And as a resident, I remember the primary nurses pulling me aside and being like, no, 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 no. These are my goals for this patient. You need to keep this big picture in mind. Don't frame it like this, frame it like this. And so I personally have benefited as a trainee. It's really great to hear that there's hard evidence for those programs as well. What about evidence for primary intensivist programs? There is evidence. I would say they're still relatively understudied. Probably the first evidence came in 2012 when a paper was published for a single-centered retrospective study on what they called a chronic cardiac care team. So this was for cardiac patients that stayed in the cardiac ICU for more than six weeks. And for this, what they found was more nurses said they saw improved understanding of patient problems, improved working relationships with families, improved team communication. They also asked families, and the families saw that there was improved ability to participate in the planning, the care and plans for their child, and better relationships with the cardiac ICU staff. So that's kind of where it started. Mm -hmm. More recently, there has been more evidence. There's been one retrospective study with like 64 PICUs, 
and close to 30,000 patients. And with this, they showed that PICUs that use primary intensivists and or primary nurses have about an 8 to 12% lower adjusted mean length of stay than PICUs that don't. There have been two single-centered randomized control trials. Both those trials have found non-significant reductions in length of stay. One of them, which was done here at my institution, did find was that patients who were given primaries had fewer unplanned reintubations, and they also had more common that at the end of life, they had do not resuscitate orders in place. Incidentally, that larger retrospective study also found that long-stay patients in PICUs with primary intensities are more likely to have DNR orders and less likely to have intensive interventions at the end of life. Concurrently, in one of these RCTs, they measured parental perspectives, and it showed that parents whose child received primaries reported better communication, listening, and decision-making. But for the most part, that's kind of what we have for evidence. Real quick, I will also say that some of these studies also report that there's a cost to primary intensivists. So primary intensivists report having stress in their role. They have to expend time and effort. There can be discordant goals between the primary intensivists and the service teams. And sometimes service teams can overly rely on the primary intensivists, having them make decisions that normally the team would make. Oh, that's interesting. Jeff, thanks for overviewing kind of what we know about this topic. And, and there certainly are more studies to come that we'll unpack further. When I think about the patients that I've helped take care of and think about those patients who have access to a primary intensivist, it sure seems self-evident to my little bit of experience that these primary intensivists improve communication and they improve patient care. And it'll be exciting to see that the next steps in research we'll see in the, in the coming months, maybe a couple of years. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye. <laughs>